Coming at Saturday Meal Vibe, I'm joined by the multi-platinum selling artist Roger Earl of the iconic Foghat. Have you heard of this guy Jimi Hendrix? And it's in all the music music papers. Eric and um, Jimmy Page and um, all the top guitar players were raving about this guy who came from the States. So I said, yeah, I've heard him. He said, would you like to, you know, try out for the drums? I said, yes, thank you. One lunchtime, it was raining, and uh, we were all outside waiting for the club to open up. It was during the week, and I borrowed my dad's car with the drums. Jimmy came up to me and started talking to me about songs he'd written the night before. It was it was something else. I, had, I didn't really have a, a clue of what he was playing. He was just playing, mm. you know. But then he started, then he played a slow blues and he played a shuffle. Then I think he played a, might have been a Bob Dylan song. And I, was, I played for about 40 minutes. I was going to uh, say, like, did, did that kind of throw you? Because you've got this guy that's kind of changing the game, like just, and you're there yeah, like, I didn't have, audition I didn't have for that. I didn't have a clue. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, to be honest, I mean, he was making some incredible noises, noises because I, I couldn't quite grasp it because he hadn't initially he wasn't like playing a, a rhythm mm. he was like playing and I'm, I'm sort of trying to find somewhere I think one of the reasons Fall for the City album was that successful I know because Nick Jameson was playing on it, had a huge hand in the arrangements of all the songs, you know, especially uh, Slow Ride, Fall for the City, everything that was on there uh, when Craig decided he didn't want it or couldn't do it anymore, I should say. <clears throat> but Craig McGregor would, uh, you know, occasionally we would, we would play with somebody like uh, Deep Purple over here. And we only have like a 45 minute or 50 minute show. And Craig would call me and say, Oh, Rog, uh, I think I'll come to that show out in California. Uh, the Deep Purple show? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll do that one. <laughs> Me, Rod and uh, Dave got to shake hands and meet Rudy Dixon. And he was... He was a tall man, he was very imposing, but more importantly, he, as far as I was concerned, he was the father of, you know, writing blues songs that horrible little sods like us a lot turned into rock and roll tunes. <laughs> but, um, and he invited us over his house for dinner. We couldn't go that night because we were leaving the next morning, but about six months later, we went back to his house on the south side and we had dinner. We were up until about 12 o'clock in the morning uh talking music he was he was absolutely fantastic remember when dave and i were playing still playing together when dave was still alive we did a show in toledo ohio and um humble pie was on the bill now uh, stevie marriott was and Foghat were like we did tons of shows with them and stevie was uh the, the most beautiful crazy bastard i'd ever met 
incredible, incredible singer and guitar player. Oh, yeah. And uh, we did tons of shows with him in the early 70s and, and th throughout the 70s. Uh, and I love Stevie. Um, I fell asleep numerous times under, under his coffee table. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Hello, Ryan. I am Ryan. Hello, how are Hi, you? Roger. <laughs> uh, nice to see you too. I actually I made a cup of coffee. I left it out. I'll get you the coffee. Hi, how Hi. are you? Hi, I'm Linda. I'm going to go get his coffee. Have fun. She's the coffee girl. I'm right. Coffee. I, I am. I'm the, I'm the, I am. I'd rather be the coffee girl. <laughs> coffee girl would be a, like a promotion. Thank you. <laughs> She works her fingers to the bone, I pushing numbers on the telephone. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people wouldn't get that. <laughs> yes, they would. No, it's that one, isn't it? Did you well, know, you've heard Slow Ride, right? Of course. All right. You know that there's a rotary phone written. I'm in the mood. Jameson did that. That's another bit of useless information for you. What are we going to do, talk about today? Oh, we're going through numerous different things, but obviously we'll talk about the new album. Um, Good. But we'll be we'll be covering a few things. Okay. <laughs> um, if you're if you're all good to go, um, we yeah, can, I'm good uh, to go. We can get <laughs> cool. I haven't had any wine yet. What's the time over there? Uh, it's six o'clock here. Still, still kind of early, but yes. we could get well, away with lunch. it. I had an avocado for lunch. <laughs> All right, let's, carry, let's get serious now. Come on, let's talk about music. Yes. Not my culinary <laughs> delights. <laughs> um, so I'm here, of course, with Roger Earl of Fog Hat. Um, thank you very much for joining me. Um, of course, uh, you have the, the new album out, uh, Sonic Mojo, which we'll absolutely be looking into. Um but first, you know, I like to kind of start things off by taking a look at those early years, you know, those humble beginnings. Um, so what first got you into wanting to become a musician and in particular a drummer? Okay, you're asking me to be serious. Hold on. <laughs> a hit album, number one. <laughs> uh, well, maybe, um, what are you kidding? <laughs> Playing drums in a blues and rock and roll band? Uh uh, you know, I I know how fortunate I am. Uh, my first, I was a commercial artist at the beginning. I left school when I was 15, mm. got a job in London um, as a commercial. Actually, I was a glorified tea boy and coffee boy for about the first three months. But I took my uh, work seriously because, you know, drums and cymbals are expensive mm. uh, back then. Um, and uh, and I when I was 16, I joined my first band, which was uh, three guys who I went to school with, uh, Ray Dorsett, lead singer with um, Mungo Jerry, was our singer and guitar player. Dave Hutchins was was probably my best friend since I was seven or eight years old, was the bass player. Dick Howell was playing guitar. They were called the Tramps back then, and um, they'd been playing since they were 10. I didn't actually start taking lessons till I was like 13, so they were a bit ahead of me. But they heard something they liked. <laughs> <laughs> That's where it starts. Mm. I mean, I think growing up, everybody has that 
that first band or musician that's like their musical band did you have an artist in particular that really kind of struck a chord with you uh well this band was was really good because Ray Dorsey and uh, was really into like you know blues and rock and roll uh, which I was um so uh, actually I've been pretty fortunate throughout my career I always played with I guess like-minded musicians I always played with really good players uh, mm. right from the very first band and they they were really good like I said they started when they were 10 I joined Savoy Brown when I was what 19 I think you know, and Kim Simmons was well, about the same age as me, might have been a year younger, but they were all really good players. So I think that helped, uh, you know, playing. I didn't really play with anybody who was no mediocre players. Mm. They were all, they all took their jobs seriously, except for me. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to zigzag a little bit here. Um, two or three months ago, we did a show in uh, El Dorado, Arkansas. It's spelled, it's pronounced El Dorado. Well, it's all over the theater. Mm-hmm. And it was the first show that we did that had, that we played three songs from our new album, in, which is always kind of like a little bit scary playing new music to people. Anyway, they went down really well. And uh, the audience were great. And then afterwards, Scott Holt and I are sitting backstage in our dressing rooms, having a glass of wine. And Scott says to me, Hey, Rog, isn't this really cool? How many jobs are there out there? Like when you finish working, people stand up and clap and cheer for you. (laughs) (laughs) And it it kind of puts it in perspective, really. Uh, No, I love what I do. And uh, actually, we make jokes about the fact that we get paid for traveling, sitting in planes, Mm. sitting in trains. It's like, hurry up and wait. Actually, we play for free for that extra, you know, for that hour and a half we get. But... um, no, I know how fortunate I am. I'm loving it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, now, I had read that, uh, of course, before uh, co-founding Foghat, that you, you had auditioned for, for Jimi Hendrix. I had read yeah. this. How, how did that kind of happen? Um, see, what was the bass player's name in The Animals? Um, what was the bass player's name in The Animals? It escapes no. me as well. So. <laughs> That's terrible. What happened when I was about 17 years old, uh, Chaz Chandler, the bass player from The Animals, mm. uh, was putting a band together in in the Twickenham Hounslow area where my where I lived. And um, I got the job. We didn't actually play out. We just rehearsed for about a month or two. Nothing really happened. But Chaz Chandler had my phone number. I guess he remembered me. And no. Chaz Chandler, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, Chaz called me up at work. I was working as a commercial artist at a, an industrial design studio. And um, I was, you know, I was in a band and he said, have you heard of this guy, Jimi Hendrix? And it's in all the music, music papers, you know, uh, Eric and... Um, Jimmy Page and um, all the top guitar players were raving about this guy who came from the States. So I said, yeah, I've heard him. He said, would you like to, you know, try out for the drums? I said, yes, thank you. Uh, it was in a uh, jazz club just off of um, 
Piccadilly Circus, I think. One lunchtime, it was raining, and uh, we were all outside waiting for the club to open up. It was during the week, and I borrowed my dad's car with the drums. Mm-hmm. And back when you could park in London, in the good old days. Um, and uh, Jimmy came up to me and started talking to me about songs he'd written the night before. And... Um, it was really cool. There was, you know, a bunch of, I think I was about six or seven in line to play drums and um, it was my turn. And um, yeah, uh, it was, it was something else. I had, I didn't really have a, a clue of what he was playing. He was just playing, mm. you know, but then he started, then he played a slow blues and he played a shuffle. Then I think he played a, might have been a Bob Dylan song. And I, was, I played for about 40 minutes. Obviously I didn't get the job, <laughs> uh, Mitchell got the job, and uh, and what a great job he did. He was Mitch was just like absolutely fucking incredible. What mm-hmm. a great great drummer, and like played stuff that nobody else was playing. Like at, at that time in bands, but there again, Jimmy was playing stuff like nobody else as well. I was going to uh, say, like, did did that kind of throw you? Because you've got this guy that's kind of changing the game like just and you're there like I didn't have, audition I didn't have a for that I didn't have a clue um, yeah. <laughs> I mean to be honest I mean he was making some incredible noises noises because I I couldn't quite grasp it because he hadn't initially he wasn't like playing a, a rhythm mm. he was like playing and I'm I'm sort of trying to find somewhere uh but Hey, that's what auditions are about. And uh, I did get to meet him a couple of times after that briefly. I jammed with him and played a song. The first time Folkhead came to the States in 69, uh, uh, Steve Paul scene in New York. And another time out in LA at a club, um, everybody was jamming. Eric Burden was singing, um, he was playing drums. My, uh, Buddy Miles, I got up and played a song with him. Everybody was like getting up. Um, yeah, he was um, he was something else. Um, a person like that, a musician like that, comes along once in a lifetime, mm. once in a millennium. Um, yeah, he was real special. Real special. Um, yeah, I got a chance to play with him. It was mm. magic. That'd be amazing. Um, of course, uh, you know you 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 kind of relocated over to America um, when when you formed Foghat. Um, now, traditionally, you know you have artists that that try and crack America after kind of being successful in the UK, but you guys went straight over. Um, what what do you feel it is about the band and and the music that just really resonated with that American audience in particular? Um. Well, basically, we were playing uh, music that was influenced by any number of forms of uh, American music, blues, uh, rock and roll, blues, rock and roll, R&B, bit of jazz, uh, rock and roll, blues. <laughs> I mean, that's what we were playing. I mean, I think they call it one of the umbrellas is Americana now, but it's like, you know, that's what I grew up listening to. Mm. And... Um, the other thing was we couldn't get arrested in, in England. We couldn't get any dates because our previous manager had blackboard us. And I went to see our agency, which was Frisilis at the time, Terry Ellis and Chris Wright. 
and they said we can't book you because uh, Harry Simmons has blackballed you and said he'd take um, Chicken Shack and Savoy Brown away. So it was it was the right thing to do. Um, and uh, uh, America, this is the land of music for me. This is where it all comes from. Um, you know, started with, you know, blues, mm. jazz, bebop, rock and roll, uh country, uh, gospel music, um, uh, R&B. We'd be nothing without, you know, rhythm and blues. Uh, it's, you know, this is a land of music. And mm-hmm. ever since I was a kid in our house, I lived in southwest London, Hounslow, and uh, there was always music in our house. My dad played piano. My older brother, Colin, uh, introduced me to, like, the early Sun records, you know, Jerry D. Lewis, uh, uh, Johnny Cash, and, um, you know, that's where it all started. I was the only kid in southwest London riding my bike to school singing Johnny Cash songs. <laughs> well, she loves you, big river, more than me. Well, I'm at her. Oh, stop it. Um, <clears throat> uh, I, I was a big Johnny Cash fan, uh, but even though he didn't have a drummer, um, there was always this really cool rhythm with his guitar and, Luther Perkins on um, guitar, and like, and the songs. There was always a story. Didn't mm. always, didn't always understand some of the lyrics. Like <laughs> today, I still don't understand them. But um, Johnny Cash to me was it was a musical giant. He was a poet. But there was uh, there, I, as a kid, I heard something that had the ring of truth, and I think that's mm. how I feel about the blues. That's why that got me. The first time I heard Muddy Waters. Uh, actually, uh, 1960 at the Newport Jazz Festival, that album is the most incredible live record. That changed my life. And uh, I got to meet Muddy Waters and hang out with him and then she played with him once. And uh, it's really cool when you meet your heroes and they don't let you down and it's like fun. Mm-hmm. Is a, a beautiful man. And, you know, without, you know, Willie Dixon, who wrote I Just Want to Make You Love to our first real hit. Um, there would be no rock and roll. We'd all be hung out somewhere. The Rolling Stones would be out of work as well. No, they might have made it. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you know, the, the the album that kind of really elevated you guys to an entire new level um, was, of course, that, that platinum-selling album, Fall for the City. Um, when you were making that record, I mean, it was obviously the fifth album at that point. When you were making that album... Did you have a, a feeling that this would go on to be such an iconic album? You know, it's like like five albums deep. Many people at that point, you know, like if you look at other artists, you know, they're, they're kind of dropping off, whereas you guys were kind of on the rise. Um, I think one of the reasons that we've had such a long, such longevity, that record, I mean, was um, a high point. We also, it was the first time, since our first record that we did with uh, Dave Edmonds, mm. that we actually took some time off and said, we're going to spend some time. All the other albums were done like two weeks here, a week here, two weeks there, <laughs> kind of <clears throat> busy. But um, the Full for the City album, we took three months off and said, we're going in the studio. Nick Jameson had just joined the band playing bass and producing the album. Um, he's a fucking genius. And we're still really good friends. And in fact, <clears throat> personally speaking, if there was one person in my musical career that I've worked with that mm. I really learned from, 
would be Nick Jameson, the guy who produced that and a, and a couple of other albums. As a musician, as somebody you can bounce ideas off. Also somebody, even though he took it really seriously, especially his um, mixing and recording techniques, there was, there was always an element of joy or fun. Um, there was always, there were, from time to time, there was always a moment when it would become humorous. Uh, and I mean that in the best possible way, just the whole, the, the whole thing would get lightened up because Nick would make um, tell a funny story of just the way he was actually playing, which is so incredible. You just sit there and after you'd finished doing a take, we just start fucking laughing. <laughs> it was um, so much fun to play with as a, as a musician. Um, and often when we were doing, we would do overdub like um, percussion and stuff like that. Nick and I would be in the studio doing it. He would get the sounds from whatever instruments we were playing. And then he would run in, press the button, come running down the stairs and we'd start playing to the track. It was all, um, I think one of the reasons Fall for the City album was that successful. I know because Nick Jameson was playing on it, had a huge hand in the arrangements of all the songs, you know, especially mm. uh, Slow Ride, Fall for the City, everything that was on there. Um, I think also I think the band as musicians and as players, we were like, we've been on the road for five years, basically. So everybody had their shit together. Everybody was playing, at, I think at the top of their game, we were having the time of our lives. Um, we were earning a ton of money. Uh, actually, first time at a house and uh, the bills were paid. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and we were having too much fun. I was anyway. Um, <clears throat> yeah, living the life. It was um, it was really, really good. It was great. Mm. Still it. Um, of course, you know, we touched on Slow Ride there. It's such a massive hit. Um, it's the song that kind of introduced me to you guys. I mean, I, I heard that song through a video game. Uh, right. <laughs> that was kind of my... Un- well, there was... So everybody goes, oh, it's Guitar Hero, but there was... Uh, it was a Grand Theft Auto game. Right, right. Grand Theft Auto, right. That's yeah. right. Because I, I I'm a little bit older. So I, I was playing that when I shouldn't have been. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I can remember that song coming up. And it just really stuck out to me. Can you remember kind of when that, that song was being put together, kind of how that came about? I mean, it's, it's a song that's obviously going to stick with you for your whole career. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I, I, vividly, um, Tony Stevens had left left the band playing bass, got fired again. Um, I was living up in Woodstock at the time uh, in Bearsville, and Nick Jamieson and I were, uh, were good friends because he'd already worked with us on a couple of records. And we get we played badminton and we go out and jam together at the, the local bars and clubs up there. And I asked him if he wanted if he could play bass, and he said. Yeah, the first instrument I played. He plays everything. Don't you hate people like that? <laughs> uh, and uh, so we drove down. Rod and I shared a house out on, um, on, out on Long Island, and we'd had the basement soundproofed. I wasn't living there at the time. But anyway, we came down, and like as I said, Nick had just joined the band on bass, and... Uh, mm. Dave uh, 
started playing the basic rhythm, which is sort of kind of like a, uh, it's like a John Lee Hooker riff. It's played like in 4-4 four, four, as opposed to like a shuffle. And, um, and then we were, Dave just played it on his own first. And then we started. Um, Nick said to me, go bang. Pardon? <laughs> there. Mm. Which is uh, two, two and four. So, um, which is an interesting way to start a song. But that's that was Nick. Um, the whole arrangement was done by Nick. And I guess if somebody agree myself, um, you know, the breakdown in the middle where you've got the bass and drums, there's a story to that as well. Um, Nick Jameson was the one who, who pulled it all together. In fact, that day, I, I recall us, I mean, we got the breakdown, we did this, we did, you know, it was... Um, mm. It was very much a band effort. In fact, most of the songs that we wrote, Dave was our, Lonesome Dave was our main writer. And of course, Rob Price is a brilliant guitar player, especially his slide work. Mm -hmm. um, but the band always um, was involved in arranging and coming up with ideas and put together. But the beauty of working with Nick Jameson was that um, he could coalesce all those ideas and, and put the icing on the cake, as it were. Well, now I have to go back to the first album, Dave mm. Edmonds. Um, we, without Dave Edmonds um, engineering and producing our first album, uh, I know uh, we cert that certainly I Just Want to Make Love to You, our first single wouldn't have been anywhere near as successful as it was. But Dave Edmonds, uh, an absolute genius, beautiful guy, uh, uh, that we were real fortunate that he decided to work with us. We asked him. I think we got down on our knees and begged because we, we certainly weren't producers or engineers. Dave, please, please, we'll pay you. And he said, okay, then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I digress. No, no. Because um, it's something that just comes to mind there is, uh, of course, on that, that Fall, for the, uh, Fall for the City album, you, you feature on your own on the cover, the front cover. Um, can you remember, like, was that a kind of a, a deliberate thing there? Where, where, or was it just by accident that that kind of... I was, I was better looking than the rest of them. <laughs> no. Uh, again, it's Nick Jameson's fault. Right. About my engine for fishing. And it, because when we were up in uh, Sharon, Vermont, when we were doing the Fall for the City album, mm. it was in the middle of nowhere on a mountain. And, uh, you know, I'd get the basic tracks done. And um, and they'd say, well, we're going to do some overdubs now. Bugger off. And so, of course, I would. And I would go fishing. Um, up there, there was um, – uh, you could catch some Atlantic salmon. I caught one once up there, which is quite a feat. But um, salmon, trout, fishing, and I would go fishing. So Nick was well aware of my – favorite pastime other than banging stuff and um he uh he came up with the idea for the fourth of the city uh album cover uh that was his idea again mm -hmm. see, about somebody who uh has his finger in every little pie and uh yeah good man i love him like a brother <laughs> um of course, the the latest album, uh, Sonic Mojo, uh, it's your your first release in seven years, and of course has re re uh, reached the uh, number one on the Billboard Blues charts. Um, 
going back into the studio was would you looking to approach this album any differently this time around you know whether that be in the the writing or recording process well um scott Hull had joined the band he's been in the band two years now mm. um he cut his teeth he was the other guitar player in buddy guy's band for 10 years so you know he's got some chops mm. um i met scott Hull first in 2014 um because we were working on the album at the last, our previous studio album under the influence, and um, we were about three or four songs short of a double vinyl. And um, a mutual friend, a photographer, said, "You should check this guy out." And I invited Scott Holt down to our studio in Florida, in Deland, and uh, <laughs> we're. Uh, he calls me his big brother, but. Um, or is it older brother? Yeah, old. I'm old. Uh, but we just hit it off um, uh, as as humans, as musicians. Our love for blues and all things musical, and uh, we were supposed to write three songs. It was myself, uh, Scott, and Brian. Instead, we wrote seventeen. Right, typical. So that was the start of a beautiful and long friendship. Um, also, an album came out of that. We did. We put three songs on the Under the Influence album, and we spawned another side project called Earl and the Agitators, which is basically a Falkat record anyway. Um, uh, it was just, um, you know, we have a, a mutual love uh, and affection for like all things uh musical especially american you know blues rock mm. and rock jazz country Ooh um so it was you know it was like a beautiful like relationship still is and so the this this current record hold on hold on here we go uh, <laughs> <laughs> But there's stories in it, so you know it's not like you know just you know just uh, mm. stories about stuff, and you get and it, the vinyl. We got it on CD as well for people like me. Well, we're big uh, vinyl people here. We're always yeah. in the yeah. Yes, uh, a one eighty gram curious, and it sounds really good. I've actually got a record player. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can't. We live in a really small. I, I have a, an electronic drum kit upstairs. I have practice pads everywhere and sticks everywhere. I have uh, a drum shed out in the garden where I have my regular drum kit, but it's taken down because I'm using it in a couple of shows this month. Um, so it's very noisy here. What were we talking about? We were saying about the new album. <laughs> And kind of, did you did you approach this one differently? Did you kind of, when you were going in yeah. the studio? Um, no, it's, it was done the same way. Um, all <clears> the songs that we didn't write came from jamming. Myself mm. and Scott and Brian would like just be in there like, you know, we were getting like sounds for the drums or sounds for the guitars or something. And we just play. Um, I'll give you an example. Um, uh Mean Woman Blues. Um, first time I heard that was the B-side of a Jerry Lee Lewis record. And uh, my father pointed it out to me because he brought the record in. He said, hey, have a listen to this boy, son. He can really play the Joanna. And um, Dad was a piano player. So mm. anyway, 
I suggested to Scott one day we do um, Mean Woman Blues, and uh, he was really excited about it because when he was 15, I think, his parents took him to see Elvis Presley. And uh, Elvis Presley did Mean Woman Blues. So we had that connection. We both wanted to do it, but we figured how we, we can't just do it like, you know, some of your favorite artists. You have to sort of put the hat on, as it were. So, um, again, we were just jamming, and Scott and I were jamming on some stuff. Brian pressed the buttons and said, you know, there you go. And uh, I, I think it was actually Brian putting his lead guitar on Mean Woman Blues that really pulled it off. I, I love the way Scott sings it, and, and I, it's I got a nice, a real Latin feel, and I had fun, like, doing some percussion on it. But um, Brian Bassett played some brilliant guitar on it, and I think that just sort of, like, put the icing on it. Oh, uh, what else should we talk about? Another song on this record? I mean, I'm, I was uh, just going to mention kind of my personal favourite off the album yeah, is uh, is Driving On. Yeah, um, I like that. I think it's just got that real great kind of classic rock feel. Um, you know, I imagine it goes down well live. It, it does. In fact, that was co-written by Kim Simmons. Mm. Brown. Kim and I have stayed friends over the years. And uh, like I said, our previous album, when we did Under the Influence, Kim got uh, played on like four songs on that album, as did Scott Hull. And um, when we'd finished... Um, the song, we were in uh, Nashville, a studio in Nashville with our producer, Tom Hambridge. Mm. And uh, Kim and I were just chatting and Kim said, you know, I'd really like to write some songs for Folk Out. I said, that would be great, Kim. You just have to play on it. And he laughed <laughs> because he just, um, I love playing with Kim. He's, uh, he was a brilliant, brilliant blues guitarist. I think, I, in my humble opinion, I think he was one of the the best blues guitar players that ever came out of the UK. That's another story. We all have opinions, don't we? Unfortunately, we lost Kim just over a year ago, uh, December. Um, mm. But he sent me four songs that he had uh, with, like, uh, his guitar and, and the lyrics on it, just to a click track, I think, no the other instruments. Unfortunately, he couldn't play on them, but we recorded three of them on this album. So, yeah, and Driving On was one of them. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. It's a classic sort of rock and roll, boogie, um, yeah. uh, folk-hand genre. <laughs> yeah, it's just, you know, with that slide, it feels yeah. kind of that classic folk-hat feel. I mean, um, you know, when you guys were making this album, did you did you imagine that it was going to be a, a number one <laughs> it's like, like you know, you released it and it bangs straight up there. You know, I mean, uh, apparently, it's apparently it's the only uh, Billboard number one for you guys. Uh, yeah, number one or anything. Um, yeah, it did it did surprise uh, the hell out of me. But um, <laughs> yeah, it was, it's really cool. You know, for so late in our career, and also you know, Scott's been with us what two years now. It's the first real a folk hat record, other than the agitators and him jamming on a few other albums we had with us. But, um, yeah, it was, um, it's incredible. And, and fortunately it's getting some, not making some noise over in the UK where we need to come and play. We haven't played there since 1973. We did a wow. couple of shows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, no, I'd like, we actually, we were, we were booked to come on a, to play in a show during the COVID nightmare somewhere oh, down right. in 
the Rambling Man Festival. Oh, yes. and then it got cancelled for in the next year. Then when COVID eventually went away for a day, um, they couldn't put the show. They cancelled the, the uh, festival, which is a bit sad. We did a couple of shows in, in Europe, one in Germany and Belgium, and uh, we played uh, in Sweden rock two or three times. But we need to come to uh, the UK and Europe. So can you do something about that? I mean, just tell people that you know, we can play um, I mean, and we kind of know what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, we. Yeah. I mean, we can put the word out in here now. We can do an open call for yeah. for this. The, the, the thing is, we play for free, but we're going to charge you a lot of money to get on planes and cars and trains of and supply our backline. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you know you guys have, uh, you know, you you in particular have been around, you know, as, as Fogcat for kind of over fifty years now. Um, which I'm sure, you know, you'll have gained much experience during your time. Would you have any kind of, uh, for young musicians out there, any kind of advice maybe, or maybe something that you've been told over the years that stuck with you, or or maybe something that you wish you were told? Uh, This this sounds like a serious question. It it could be a serious question. Uh, (laughs) Have a day job. (laughs) (laughs) Make your instruments. Uh, have a really rich girlfriend. Yeah. Uh, and uh, only do good drugs. Don't do nasty drugs. Only do good drugs, don't do bad drugs. And be careful. And uh, anytime you're actually playing and recording, get serious about it and leave the drugs alone. They're just for, uh, to have fun afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I don't drink as much as I ought to. Uh, excuse me. I'm not the singer. It's okay. <laughs> is that advice uh, <laughs> do, do you kind of uh, um, may, maybe maybe musically I mean a lot of people go you know how do you make a hit I mean slow ride is such a, a huge thing and you know I think now it's kind of uh, you, I, I hear a lot of young musicians that are like they're kind of searching for that that hit song um, yeah, I don't think we ever searched for it. It was never like, let's have a hit. It was, um, mm. other than that particular song, every, uh, the other, you know, we had a couple other hit singles. Uh, like, I just want to make love to you was a hit mm. over here. Obviously, Fall for the City, uh, Stone Blue, uh, One, Slow Rocker, Third Time Lucky, Driving Wheel. But um, I think what, be true to yourself or, Try to be as honest as you can about what you're doing. You know, um, Foghound uh, only did songs Foghound wanted to do. Fortunately, we had a great writer in Lonesome Dave, and uh, and he and he had um, a real <clears throat> feel for music. He was great to work with, great to work with on stage, especially. He always gave it, uh, you know, 110 percent, even when he was ill. <clears throat> but. Um, do something you enjoy. Like when I first started playing drums, mm. there was certain music that I wanted to play as opposed to, you know, I mean, it's fine sitting around like making noise, but playing in a band is what I wanted to do. It's the only thing I wanted to do. Uh, I, I did my practicing, but the real 
way to learn is to be in a band and play with the best people you can. And to be honest with yourself, play stuff you like. And especially when you're, you're learning to play an instrument, I mean, hopefully, or I imagine you play songs or play music that you enjoy. I mean, that's that's the real joy of making music and playing music, playing something that you enjoy. So, you know, be true to yourself as much as you can when it comes to like your, your taste in music, which I suppose can get a bit, you know, put your blinders on. But um, I remember when I was a kid, uh, I was 15, I was living in London with my cousin and we were listening to some Big Bill Bruinsy and uh, uh, some other sort of, he was he was really into like modern jazz and I was listening to that as well. I was already, I was still learning to play. And I said something about pure blues. And he said, there's no such thing as pure blues, which of course there isn't because mm-hmm. it's a wonderful form of music. There's no pure this or pure that. I mean, music is one of those things that sort of comes from in here, up here, mm-hmm. you know, it's uh, drums, it's heads, hands and feet. Um, you know, it's something you create. Um, uh, there's nothing pure about it actually at all. So I, I learned from that one and, um, and, at the time, I, I, I remember listening to um, uh, Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain. And I really remember this because I'm listening to it. And, you know, now I'm like, you know, uh, a, a three chord sort of wonder, as it were. And, you know, I'm, I'm really into like Muddy Waters uh, live at Newport. And I'm listening to Sketches of Spain. And I didn't get it at first. But I subsequently listen to it at other times in my life and go, wow. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Miles Davis was just like this incredible, incredible uh, musician and human being and the way he played. I've, I've watched a couple of, uh, or a, a really interesting, uh, I guess not a biopsy, but something like that. I think it was on YouTube about Miles Davis. And um, man had a hard life, but there again, you know, a, a number of people did if they were black and a musician. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in the 50s, or earning a living in the 50s and 60s wasn't easy, certainly over here. But, um, yeah, I, I, I've i spread my uh, audible wings. <laughs> I can now listen to Miles Davis and go, in wonder, and wonder mm-hmm. at what the magic that, he, that he's playing. It's um, so... Yeah, I've I've grown in that race, but I still prefer to play. There's nothing like playing um, a Chuck Berry song. <laughs> you know, it's like um, I enjoy it. It's fun, and it's also fun like to work on new material and, and come up with ideas. Um, making music is like just the best. Mm. I I think you know that's that's one of the great things. You know, like you guys, you've always had kind of a. You know, like I can put on a track and I know it's Volcat. Like you have a real clear identity. Like, um, you know, there's just from the get go, there's just, you know, the guitar comes in, the drums comes in. I know who who's playing, you know. Um, I, I feel that kind of a big thing is, as you said, like finding who you are, you know, like do something you enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, um, and I and I have been fortunate throughout my life. You know, I've played with really great players right from the very beginning. Mm. Like the current band, I mean, Brian Bassett, our lead and side guitar player and producer and chief engineer, 
has been with us, what, 27 years now. Um, I have to thank Dave for that. Um, he met uh, Brian. He, Dave moved back to the UK for about five years from uh, 84 to 89, something like that. And uh, when he came back, he met Brian down in uh, Florida. And uh, that's how I got to, I met Brian Bassett. Um, Rodney O'Quinn's been with us after Craig McGregor passed. Um, we stole him from the Pat Travers band. I called up Pat and said, yeah, Pat, uh, if, if I steal your bass player, he said, yeah. So thanks, Pat. <laughs> Actually, it was a long-time bass player, Craig McGregor, um, had lung cancer. And until Craig said to me that he can't play in the band anymore, we had three or four uh, bass players standing in for him. And uh, Rodney stood in for him. And Craig said, he's the one you want. Uh, when Craig decided he didn't want it or couldn't do it anymore, I should say. <clears throat> but Craig McGregor would, uh, you know, occasionally we would we would play with somebody like uh, Deep Purple over here. And we only have like a 45-minute or 50-minute show. And Craig would call me. I said, oh, Rog, uh, I think I'll come to that show out in California. Uh, the Deep Purple show? Uh, yeah, I, I think I'll, I'll do that one. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't want to go to all those other places where we have 300-mile drives and turn up and... Uh, now we have fun anyway, but he, he, he was. Uh, I love Craig McGregor. He was my brother by a different mother, and like real brothers, we didn't always see eye to eye. Certainly, like with some of the bands that we really liked. But that, but there again, other times. I remember back in the seventies, we would always go and hang out together before we'd leave to go to the show, and uh, we'd listen to like Little Feet. Uh, mm. Uh, Brothers Johnson was one of Craig's favourites because he had this great bass player. And then when it was time to go, we'd be ready to sort of go to the gig, get in the limo and uh, be ready. Uh, and I miss him for that because that was a really great time to sort of uh, be making music. But like I said, we were brothers. And other times we'd, 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 he'd listen to, I'd be playing something for him and he'd go, ah. oh, another example. Perfect example of myself and Craig McGregor, brothers by different mothers, was uh, I said, yeah, all my brothers, great blues band. They're not a blues band. Uh, I'm afraid they are. Uh, no, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> but of course, they weren't just a blues band. Of course not. They they carry, They probably had every tiny corner of American music, mm -hmm. including the band they it was like they had the whole spectrum of america in their music and uh, in fact when we were getting uh folk out together in um just outside of wallingford in Oxfordshire, we said <clears throat> we had a house there called um aces high that was it uh, it was out, out on the hill somewhere in the middle of nowhere could make as much noise as you wanted and every morning we'd put on the Ormond brothers and the beatles mm -hmm. yeah i mean so that was our inspiration back then. But the Orman Brothers, um, I think, I think, I don't want to digress here, but I think they were probably one of the greatest bands that ever came down the pipe. Mm -hmm. I mean, their music, there was no other band prior to them played like that and absorbed so much of, so much music and put it all in like that band. Uh, they were incredible. I got to see them a number of times too. So uh, 
I was fortunate with that. Yeah, the Ormond Brothers. I'm an Ormond Brothers fan, as he was. Mm. An fan. Well, I'm afraid they are. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, did you, I mean, we, we kind of touched on it there. Did you kind of find it difficult kind of reinventing Foghat? You know, there's obviously the different members over the years, of course, you know, this current iteration that you have now. Yeah. Um, did, was that kind of a, a difficult thing for you? Did you have that kind of discussion of like, you know, should we carry on? Should we? Um... The, the biggest thing, of course, was when Rob Price left the band in 1981, who was mm. the original star guitar player. Tony Stevens left the band in '74. <clears throat> uh, um, Lonesome Dave passed. Oh, was it? 2000. 2000, right. Um, that was the biggest thing. Other, other times when we and when Dave left, I carried on playing. Mm. Uh, Dave left to go move back to England for a while for five years. <clears throat> but um, when we lost Lonesome Dave, that that was tough because he really was pretty much the heart and soul of this band right from the beginning. And despite <clears throat> the fact that he left a few times, uh, and we always didn't see eye to eye about. Uh, playing or wanting to play, uh, which I always did. Um, when he passed, we 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 got the original band back together and it worked really well. We did a Return of the Boogeyman, a really terrific album. I was really pleased with that. We're going to re-release that on Foghat Records actually at some time in the future. Probably put it out as vinyl as well. Um, <clears throat> but. Uh, that was the toughest one when Dave passed. Um, it was, um, I remember I got a, a, my road manager and a few other people gave us a whole bunch of like um, tapes, you know, cassettes of different mm. things stuff that were interested. <clears throat> None of them really impressed me. Um, but I remembered when Dave and I were playing, still playing together, when Dave was still alive, we did a show in Toledo, Ohio. And um, Humble Pie was on the bill. Now, uh, Stevie Marriott was and Foghat were like, we did tons of shows with them. And Stevie was uh, the, the most beautiful, crazy bastard I'd ever met. Uh, <laughs> incredible, incredible singer and guitar player. Oh, yeah. And uh, we did tons of shows with him in the early 70s and, and th throughout the 70s. Uh, and I love Stevie. Um, I fell asleep numerous times under under his coffee table. He <laughs> <laughs> uh, was he was something else, and Dave would come and hang out with us as well. He didn't partake like the rest of us, but um, hanging out with Stevie, he would always have the biggest boombox, and uh, he he would pull the drawers out of his hotel room and put the boombox in there because then it would be louder. You could hear all the bass. Um, there was always like somebody going. Stop that noise! It's <laughs> not noise. It's not noise. It's music. Can you stop that noise? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, uh, when Dave passed, that that was the longest. Anyway, uh, Humble Pie were playing, and obviously Stevie had passed by this time. Um, the drummer was still in the band, not playing as well as he used to. He he was an incredible drummer, and uh, they had a new singer. Now this. And Dave and I sounded by the side of the stage and we figured, well, we'll have a listen to this guy singing our mate Stevie's tunes because he had to have a decent set of pipes to do that because Stevie Marriott had 
a great set of pipes. And uh, he started singing, and it was like me and Dave looked at each other and went, whoa. Didn't think the band sounded all that good, but um, the singer was really, really good. And it was about four months after David passed, and I said to our road manager, hey, Mike, um, could you um, you find out who that singer was with uh, Humble Pie? And he said, yeah. I said, okay. Um day or so later, he came back with the name of uh, Charlie Hune. I said, thanks, Mike. He said, yeah. And uh, I called Charlie Hune up and introduced myself. And he was apparently he was a big Falcat fan. And I said, are you interested in singing with Falcat? And he said, yes. So I sent him about 30 Falcat songs. I remember at the time, my wife said, isn't that a lot of songs? And I said, if he wants to join the band, you'll learn them. And he called me up about two or three months later and said, I've got it. And I invited him. He was living in Detroit and I'm in Long Island. I invited him to the house and we sat down and went over some stuff and sounded like, so, you know, uh, Falcat had been joined by Humble Pie. <laughs> At the time, I thought it was a pretty good idea. Yeah, Charlie Hume's a really, really good musician, and he he played with us for over 20 years. He left, he retired two years ago. Um, that must have been a bit tough. Um, uh, I, th I think it was difficult for him to sing two or three days in a row. Um, the traveling was getting him down. He had some issues like with his hips or something. He was an avid skier. Um, but he did a really good job with the band. He was a great singer, great guitar player. But um, in fact, when he left, we were, I was down at the studio, our studio down in uh, Deland, Florida. And uh, myself and Brian and Scott Holt were writing some music. And he sent an email to our manager and said that he won't be turning up for rehearsals, which was about three or four days from there. He's retiring, which was kind of weird. He didn't call me, he didn't call Brian or anybody. Uh, but I also, since then, it's been over two years, I, I don't think it's easy any time when you turn around and say, I'm not doing this anymore. I can't envisage a time when I don't want to do this. I mean, there might come a time when I can't do it anymore. Uh, you know, playing drums in a rock and roll band. But yeah, I, I've got band-aids all over me. My hands have been uh, some fantastic surgeons out there and uh, stuff you can do to keep everything functioning. I've torn both shoulders, uh, wow. right knee, toes had in, worked on, on them, you know, um, the bionic bloke. <laughs> <laughs> but... Um, and, I, and I've learned, you know, to adjust certain things. You know, I don't have symbols up in the air anymore. I I stretch, I exercise, I use like weights and stuff like that. Um, you know, because playing drums, you have to be, you have to be physically okay to play in this band anyway. And um, I try and stay on top of it. I uh, keep my hands and feet busy. You know, I practice most days for an hour or so just to keep my hand in um i listen to like you know our, our 
at songs and recordings, um, you know, when we're playing somewhere, you know, just to make sure everything's sort of, sort of in order. And uh, truth is, Ryan, I, I play in a great band. Mm-hmm. These guys, every one of them, they're the great players. Uh, we have an absolute blast making music and having fun. And the same thing on the road. Uh, another example I'll give you, like, uh, from time to t- most of the, our dates we fly in, the commercial aircraft, uh, but occasionally they will get, we'll have like two or three day run and we'll drive a sprinter or, or we'll have three station wagons or uh, minivans. And, you know, sometimes you've got to drive, you know, three or four or 500 miles overnight. You know, it's a big country, America. <laughs> and one of the beauties with this band, nobody moans. Everybody's like having a good time. Um, it's like, uh, um, who wants to drive? I do. Everybody puts their hands up and it's like, they argue about who's driving overnight. It's like, um, I'm having the time of my life. Um, I am the elder statesman in the band, but uh, Scott Holt accused me of being his big brother one time, which I take as about the best compliment you can get. Um, We get on great. We love playing music. We're pretty much a very self-contained unit. We have a great road crew. And sometimes a couple of them can't make it because of various other commitments. We have uh, three or four sound engineers that we we love working with. Uh, we have our favourites, of course, but um, you know we only play maybe usually don't play more than two or three times a week. We do around sixty to seventy five odd shows a year. Um, but we have a great crew. We have a great, uh, I, what, what would I call them? Family. Um, the, band, the band is only run by women. Our manager, um, uh, assistant Rose. Um, there's, you know, we keep, we keep, we keep the testosterone. Uh, <laughs> that's for the band, but it runs, it's very efficient. Um, mm. so, uh, yeah, uh, it's a, I have a ball. I have I have a blast. It seems like you guys are just in, enjoying the moment. You know, you like obviously you got the new album out, and it, you know, having watched a couple of interviews that that you've done, you know, you, you do. You guys feel like uh, like you're in a good place. You know, like creating music that you enjoy, playing gigs that you you know you love doing. I mean, what more could you want? Isn't it? You know. Uh, well, right. Um, uh, uh... It, it's we have fun. We have fun doing it. And uh, um, to quote Arthur, "Isn't fun the best thing to have?" Uh, <laughs> um, I love Dudley Moore. He played the piano too. Um, it is, uh, you know. And the other thing is, um, I'm at a point in my uh, career where I, I'm really grateful that I'm still able to play like to mm. the standard that I want and be be able to do it. And uh, I know how fortunate I am. I said it before, but I'll say it again. I play in a great band. These guys are just the best. Uh, um, I consider them friends. We hang out together. Uh, and when they do get drunk, which is always after a show, or not always, but after shows, they're fun. They're funny drunks. They're, nobody's a miserable bastard. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, everybody takes their uh, craft for one for a better word and playing like with this band seriously everybody's like 
Mm. We enjoy it, but it's like, you know, the hour and a half means something. The rest, the whole day is about playing. The rest of the time, it's hurry up and wait, planes and trains and, 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 and automobiles. It's like, and then when you get to do the hour and a half or hour and 45 or 45 minutes, it's like, that's what we do it for. Um, it's, uh, it's really cool. Hmm. Um, a question that I always uh, like to finish on, I ask every guest that comes on. Um, it's a bit of a hypothetical one. Uh, if you could talk... What does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you could tour or, or play with uh, one musician from the past and one from the present, who would they be? I mean, obviously you've performed with, with uh, some very amazing people over the years, but is, is there, you know, somebody that you could kind of uh, jump back in time and, and perform with if you could? Um, there was a dream I had. Because um, one of my first inspirations was Jerry Lee Lewis. At mm. first, band, uh, my dad took me to see him. And I and I've seen him a number of times when I was growing up in London. I would always go and see him West End bars, the the boat club in Richmond, or wherever he was playing, or around London. I would always be there, as would my older brother. The interesting thing about that is Lonesome Dave would also. I didn't know him then, of course, but he was a, he was at all the same shows as I was. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, where was it? Um, Mitchum Majestic. I think that was the first time I saw him. And Dave was like a year, year and a half older than me. So I was 12 when I went there. Dave would have been 13 or 14. But he went to the same, we went to the same show. And we didn't discuss this, oddly enough, until I knew he was a, a big fan of Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard. And, and that's how we grew up on. Uh, but um, it wasn't until our last bus tour where we would, <laughs> it's like a couple of old people, we would sit down with a glass of wine and on the bus after the show and like, Talk about where we what we did when we were kids. And it was like, oh, you were there. You were. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What about West Ham Baths? Yeah, I was there. Where were you? And it was like um, Jerry Lee Lewis. I would have loved to have played with him. But mm. having said that, I did get to play with a number of my heroes. Um, Muddy Waters, uh, nineteen seventy-seven. Folkhead did a tribute to the blues in the Palladium in Manhattan. We were the house band. Um, Muddy Waters, John Lee Hooker, uh, Paul Butterfield, Johnny Winter, all these people are on those shows. Eddie Bluesman Kirkland, Willie Big Eye Smith playing bud drums with uh, Muddy's band. Um, that was a highlight of my life. And, I, and then the encore for the whole, we were playing for like four hours. Called mm. it and filmed by the way, and uh, Warner Brothers have all that locked in their basement somewhere. They won't let me see it. Um, there was a bootleg put out from uh, the ne in the Netherlands. They got it off of a 45-minute TV show we did with it, but that's mm -hmm. another story. Um, I got to pl playing with Muddy. Uh, I got to meet um, so many uh, of my musical heroes and, and I played with them. Willie Dixon, I got to meet in Chicago, 1977. Without Willie Dixon, there would be no rock and roll. Uh, Quick, can I tell the story? Go Quick for story. it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, 
we had three nights at the amphitheater in chicago 1977 i just want to make love to you have been released off the live album mm. as a and of course it was a hit off of our first album back in 1972 and uh the first night we played there willie dixon's young daughter came down to see us treated her like the princess that she was of course because willie dixon's daughter second night she brought her brother down butch and i we treated him like the prince he was and it was it was really cool everybody was excited in the band with about me meeting willie dixon's kids <clears throat> third night they brought their dad down and i got to me rod and uh, dave got to shake hands and meet willie dixon and he was he was a tall man he was very imposing but more importantly he as far as i was concerned he was the father of you know writing blues songs that horrible little sods like us a lot turned into rock and roll tunes <laughs> but, um, and he invited us over his house for dinner we couldn't go that night because we were leaving the next morning but about six months later we went back to his house on the south side and we had dinner we were up until about four o'clock in the morning uh talking music he was he was absolutely fantastic uh you know to talk to he's he he's probably uh written and published about 300 odd songs or more um and more and recently we uh we were we played just outside chicago and we went to chess records which is the blues heaven foundation and um is the old chess records building i mean as far as i'm concerned that's like holy ground <laughs> <laughs> and uh it's it's really cool they have all this the story of the the studio um you know willie dixon was the in-house producer and main songwriter there and um we're we're being we're, we're doing the tour it was, it was just the band uh they opened it up for us and everybody whoever gets to chicago if you go there it's it's really something and um and we, we there was one point where we were janine i think her name was uh who was in charge of it and uh, we're talking all of a sudden this lovely uh, young woman comes in there and is looking at me like she knows me and i'm going it's far too young for me and by that by the way i mean it's like uh, no and then and and she's smiling at me like she knows me and i don't know her and she, it's willie dixon's youngest daughter she was seven years old when myself dave and rob price were at willie's house having dinner and she served us dinner wow uh, yeah it, it, it was beautiful and she's now what uh, i don't know 20 something 30 i don't know um but it was so cool like to reconnect and and she was telling her story she said you know before we went over that, that her mum said to her she said well what do white people eat <laughs> 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 uh, we had uh it was a great evening and and throughout the whole evening after we'd eaten had dinner willie because rod especially dave like knew a great deal more about uh willie's career mm. and all, all the records that he'd produced and, and he, he would send his kids up into the uh upstairs loft and bring that down these 78s and like we'd all sort of look at them and go wow you know like it was black gold um that was a highlight of my life um now I, again i i got to 
meet another hero. So I guess that really doesn't answer your question. Other than Jerry Lewis, yeah, I would like to have played with Jerry Lee. Uh, but the real joy that I've had in life is that I've got to meet a number of my heroes. Chuck Berry I never played with. I did see him one time, though. Well, I saw him mm -hmm. a bunch of times, but uh, I never got to play with Chuck. Dave and I would have loved that. Um, but actually, I really enjoyed uh, Keith Richards' uh, what is it? How I Howl Rock and Roll. I think it was Chuck Berry's 60th birthday. They made a, a film of it, and it was fantastic, you know. Uh, and uh, Keith put this great band together for Chuck for his 60th birthday. I thought that was just a real cool thing to do. But I never played with Chuck. That would have been <clears throat> that would have been fun. But uh, no. Um, I've, is there I've, one I've, from no, is, is there one from from kind of today that that you know somebody's still here that that you uh, I think you'd um, like to play with. Hmm. Yeah. Uh, actually, um, there's a whole bunch of people I'd like to play with. Actually, I've, I've done a number of sessions over the years, but the, the reason I've done that is because I think people have listened to the record and say things like, you know, Roger could play drums on that uh, because of the way I play. But uh, playing with somebody, I don't know. Um, I, uh, oh, be tempted by uh, yeah, no, 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 I've, got, I've got one who's still here Buddy Guy Buddy you Guy well I've met Buddy Guy a number of times I I presented to him at the Memphis Blues Awards uh, one time he won that particular time he won uh, best blues artist best guitar player best new record best new something else and my co-presenter at the time said does Buddy Guy play piano and I said He'd probably win that too if he did. Hold on a second. <laughs> you see that? Yes. Let me give him Buddy Guy his uh, award. Uh, and I met him a number of times because Scott Holt was in his band for 10 years. I haven't played with Buddy, but that would be that would be a, another highlight. I would love to do that one day. Quick story. Go for it. Uh, uh, we're out, I'm in Long Island where, where I live and Scott's staying with us for a couple of days and Buddy's playing just down the road uh, uh, a theatre and um, it, so we, we're, we're going to go there and um, we're lining up outside um, Buddy's dressing room everybody's sort of you know hollering up to sort of pay homage to this fantastic blues man and then it's our turn to go in there we go in and uh, and Buddy's guy is just beautiful. I've met him a number of times on some cruises and some mm. gigs, but I would love to play with him. Anyway, we're sitting there. On the table, he has this bottle of, I think it's 100-year-old Hennessy cognac. Well, he sees me eyeing it, and he says, and he looks at me, he goes, you, you want some? I go, thank you. He said, help yourself. So I you know, pour myself. I'm not driving, Scott's driving, so I pour myself a decent cognac. He probably figured that, you know, being English, I, you know, I would appreciate a decent cognac. And uh, anyway, it's time to go, because Buddy's gonna go on stage, and Scott got up and played with him that night. But um, as we're walking back downstairs into the theater, and Scott says, you know, Buddy never offers that to anybody. I said, huh, he figured an Englishman would appreciate a fine cognac. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to play with uh, Buddy. He's still with us and still playing. So uh, 
that would cover that one. Mm. Yeah, great um, that too. <laughs> um, well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, of course, for those that want to uh, grab the brand new album, uh, Sonic Mojo, uh, you can now via the link in the description below. Of course, also available on vinyl, as we can see. <laughs> um, and we'll, we'll see if we can get it back up to number one. I believe it has slightly gone down a little bit, but we sure. could. Uh, uh, yeah, only uh, just. At <laughs> this time in our careers, any kind of success is uh, appreciated and uh, probably deserved. But uh, uh, I just, I'm one of those fortunate few, as I've said before. I get to mm. earn a living doing something I love doing. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Ryan. I've enjoyed it. Oh, this. it's been cool. I appreciate your time. Um, maybe. Uh, if we come to England, maybe we'll meet. Maybe you can come and see us. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I'm hoping for the for the gig that will happen eventually. <laughs> Hopefully nothing uh, will get in the uh, way this time. <laughs> our manager is working feverishly with it. Um, our agency is talking to people in Europe. So um, maybe it'll happen this summer. Uh, that's something I'll Hopefully so. Um, yeah, you know we can catch up then if uh, if it all happens. And um, thank you very much for your time. I know you're you're a busy person. Not really. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I've got a day off. 